We are hours away from kicking 2017 to the curb and welcoming in 2018. Anybody going to Times Square tonight? <laughs> Has anybody ever been to Times Square? Really? For New Year's. Like ever? <laughs> like ever? So wait, who's in the back? I can't see. Oh, Ellen. You, you've been? You've rung in the new year in Times Square? Is it, is, is, is it as bad as it looks? Really? All right, so if, any, if anybody wants to know what it's like to be a cow, you can go to New York. And is it true that you just have to pee where you stand? Well, you just have to um, not pee where you stand. See, I just... I, I, that's probably TMI, huh? It's probably not appropriate. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. But anyway, so we're, we're, we are... It's a move... <laughs> That is a Brzezinskiism. That's what we call a Brzezinskiism. <laughs> and, and see, Ashley is just shaking her because she knows she lives with the Brzezinskiisms. <laughs> All right, so we're kicking out 2017. We're bringing in 2018. And, and I have to say, you know, as I was kind of reflecting through um, this, this kind of teaching this morning, <clears throat> 2017, it, it, was, it was a kind of a, a, a tumultuous year, uh, especially for just, just being a human being. Uh, terrorism seems to just kind of uh, be prominent throughout our headlines and, and violence. Like, you know, we had, the, we had the Las Vegas gig. We had the Texas uh, shooting at the church. We've um, had terrorist attacks, uh, California and New York and, and all this. And then, and then if you just look around the world, sometimes we let the worldwide stuff just kind of um, be, be noise in the background because it really doesn't affect us here. But there was just... Um, in, in Afghanistan, I think a mosque was blown up and 50 people were killed and 200 were injured. I mean, these, these are the things that just kind of churn in our culture. In 2017, it was, it was, it was a difficult year. Now, there's going to be people that are going to Times Square tonight. They're going to be doing it in, in, in just, just to make a stance and say, I am not going to be fearful of terrorists. I'm going. There's some people that are going to stay away and say, why bother taking a risk? And then there's those that are chicken of the cold that will not go because it's, too, it's going to be the coldest night of like forever, I guess. But fear has this undergirding in our society, in our culture. And I believe it's at different levels. So we don't walk around fearful of everything all the time. Maybe we can say that even concern is a degree of fear. And so it's always kind of there. You know, when, when I'm in the mall, I want to know and I pay attention. I want to know where the indoors are, where the outdoors. I pay attention to who's around me. I just do. I, I, I am just thinking that way. If it goes down, what am I going to do? Now, I, I don't not go to the mall because of that, but this thing is within me. It's this concern that just kind of churns. And it's, it's, our, it's, it's the events of even this past year that have kind of made me in tune to those things. Faith is this undergirding 
I mean, I'm sorry, fear is this undergirding in our culture, in our society. And, and I got to say, I don't want to bum anybody out, but I, I don't believe 2018 is going to get any better. I mean, at least not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says it's going to get worse, and then Jesus comes. I'm not sure how much worse it's going to get, but it's going to be pretty bad. And so don't think that any government, any political party, any politicians are going to save us because they don't. Jesus is the only one that's going to save us. But I, I can't imagine things are going to get better for us in 2018. I hope they, they, I hope they do, but I'm just not sure. But to live with this fear, it takes its toll on people. It takes its toll emotionally, spiritually, physically. We come to this, when we come to this place of, of fearing the worst, not only like in, from, a, from a cultural perspective, but just in our lives. When we, when we come to this place of, of fearing the worst, it, it, it messes with our brains. Maybe you can relate to this. When, when you're worried, when you're fearful, when you have concern, you begin these little movies in your brain. And these little movies play out every what-if scenario that could possibly happen. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Before you know it, there's been a nuclear explosion in the whole world and it's gone. And, and, so, and so there's this thing within us and it's been part of us ever since the beginning of, of people. These, these movies play in our brain about the worst case scenario, what could happen, the concerns that we have, the fears that we have, and it causes us to respond or react differently in certain situations or around people or with different experiences. This is just kind of how we're wired, this, this concern, this, this fear, this tension that we live in. Now, again, it's, it's nothing new. I hope that you had the chance to read Genesis uh, as I sent out the, uh, the text message to kind of get the backstory of what I'm going to talk about this morning. Because I want to talk about this guy by the name of Joseph. Now, Joseph, uh, he had the Technicolor dream coat that his dad gave him and all that. And so he was his fav- dad's favorite and his brothers hated him. He ends up just getting kind of arrogant with his brothers. His brothers throw him in a well. They sell him into slavery. He does some time in some guy's house. He's... Um, He's sexually harassed by the guy's, the, the guy's uh, wife. He runs away because he doesn't want to dishonor God. He ends up in jail. And then he ends up, years and years later, as second in command of Egypt. But there was this whole time where life was horrible at the hands of his brother. His brothers, 11 of them. Now, later in the story, the father dies, Jacob. Everything's being reconciled. They're all living in Egypt. The father dies, and the brothers now become fearful. The movie starts playing in their brain. And this is, in chapter 50 of Genesis, this is what the brothers are thinking. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Well, at this point in chapter 50, things have been reconciled for over 17 years. In fact, when, when the, all of this came out and Joseph and his brothers, or his brothers found out it was Joseph who they were buying food from in chapter 45 of Genesis, Joseph tells them, listen, guys, don't be stressed out. Don't be hard on yourselves. God sent me ahead of you to save your life. 
And, he, and the story says he, he cried with them and he hugged them and he kissed them. Joseph forgave them. And for the next 17 years, they lived in prosperity in Egypt. They were given the best land. And Joseph cared for them. Joseph gave them what they needed. They would have died during this famine. But Joseph had the food to give them. And they grew in number and they grew and they grew and they grew. They had a very, very prosperous life. He, he did nothing to cause fear in the brothers, but they were fearful. And the movie started to play in their minds. And they started to think of the scenarios of what could happen now that their father was dead. See, what's interesting in the story is Joseph forgave them, but they never really confessed their sin. They, they never came to him and said, listen, Joe, we're really sorry that this happened. Joseph just freely forgave them. He was so happy that they were finally again in his life. He saw his, his younger brother. He cried. He wept. He hugged them. But now the brothers are thinking like, we hated him so much back then. Why doesn't he hate us now? Our father is dead. Maybe they're just thinking that, yeah, that whole act for the last 17 years, smile on his face, that was, that was just him looking good in front of dad. Now, now we're going to see the real Joseph. And they believe now that they better do something to kind of thwart this movie that they have playing in their brain, this fear that they have about their brother. And this is what they say. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. The brothers have a very checkered past. They took their brother threw him in a well. They were going to kill him. They sold him into slavery. They created this big story that some animal got a hold of him. They, they killed the goat. They put blood on, the, on, the, on Joseph's coat and they, they showed it to Jacob. And Jacob is like just broken hearted. But the brothers, they, they maintain the story. They have a very checkered past. And even the way they go about making sure that they're forgiven or seeking forgiveness is encased in a lie. They, they're, they're, telling, they're telling Joseph that their dad said that you should forgive us. It never happens. In fact, there's nothing in the story that would lead us to believe that Jacob had a concern that when he was going to die, Joseph was going to retaliate against his brothers. See, he did nothing but bless them, nothing but bless their families, nothing but bless their children. There's nothing in the story that says they need to be fearful. But the brothers aren't really all that up and up, and so they kind of take things into their own hands. And yet what I find interesting is, even though they're going about this the wrong way, they're creating this story, they're, they're lying again, the sentiment is they really want to be forgiven. Like now, 
the, the, the guilt, the fear, the movie has played itself out where now they really want forgiveness. They want to be really reconciled in their own heart. And what I find interesting is they don't call what they did to him a mistake or poor judgment. They call it sin. Like, forgive us of our sin. There's no trying to rationalize it. Well, you were a real jerk, Joe, so, you know, we just figured we'd teach you a lesson, throw you in a well and sell you in slavery. There, there's none of that. They take, begin to take responsibility. And I find it interesting, Joseph's response when he gets this message. He's a bit of a crybaby. He cries throughout the whole story, but again, he cries again. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. And I, and I was thinking, like, why? Why would he cry? I don't know if it's his, he's sad about his dad. So, so I just started kind of thinking and, and, and meditating on it and through it. And I wonder if it's, like, you have to look beyond what's written and into human nature, into, like, the heart of, of who we are. And so I wonder if it's, he's crying because here he is, he has forgiven his brothers, he has blessed them, cared for them for the last 17 years, and they still don't believe him. Everything he has done, they still don't believe that he is a good guy, that he has forgiven them, that he loves them. For the past 17 years, he has done nothing but care for them. And his brothers still believe that he may be just some two-faced Joe. And now he's going to have his revenge. But Joseph, through his tears, he responds to him this way. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Twice he says in these couple verses, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He speaks words of encouragement to them. I'm going to take care of you. Just like I have been for these past 17 years, I'm going to continue to care for you. Joseph has no desire to play God. He even says, who who am I? My God? He understands that in the no matter what of life, God is still in control. I mean, he could have played God. He was second in charge, man. He had lots of power, lots of money, lots of servants. He could have enslaved them. He could have sent them to jail. He could have had them all killed. But he chose to let God handle the situation and not take things into his own hands. He could have handed out some payback. Maybe if we want to spiritualize it, he could have given some divine justice to the brothers. But he chose not to. Instead, he continues to honor and fear God. And as I was thinking about this part of the story, it, it made me think of relationships in my own life and, and uh, how, how they just kind of, sometimes they come and go. And I wonder... I wonder if the tensions that we experience in our relationships and the, and the falling outs and, and the, the, the just the, the breakups, if, if I can use that word, I wonder if they can be contributed or attributed to us trying to play God or at least Holy Spirit. Like, if I was God for the day, just one day, 
I would be setting some things straight. And if I was God for a day, I would probably set some people straight. Like, sometimes, sometimes I think in in my bad moments, I believe I know what God should do with people. Like, God, if I was you, I would handle it this way. And my life would be so much easier if he would just listen at least once. But in my worst moments, sometimes I take that correction into my own hands and I don't leave room for the things of God. Now, I'm not saying that we become passive in our own lives or in the lives of others. We're called to love actively. We're called to even confront people in in, in sin. But I think it's a good place to start, a good place for us to start is to analyze what's in our heart. Are we coming at it because we know it all? Because we're uber spiritual? Because we can, we can regurgitate chapter and verse very easy, and they obviously can't? Are we doing it out of place of arrogance and pridefulness? Or are we doing it from a place of concern and love? Are we broken for them? Or do we just want to break them? It's a, it's a very different posture of the heart. Joseph decides to let God handle the wrongs that have been caused in his life. He chose to forgive and let God be God. Let God be in control. And it's not an Old Testament principle. This is, this is a thread that runs through the entire Bible. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then First Thessalonians, that book right there, says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Don't pay back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do good for each other. Meaning, there's this, this meaning in this verse that says, Even if somebody has wronged you, you should try to do good for that person. <clears throat> Joseph understood this. Joseph got it, and he won't take justice into his own hands. In fact, look what he says in verse 20. You intended, he's talking to his brothers now, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, here's the tension that runs in the story of Joseph. It's the the mystery of, of God. Through the sinfulness of people, through the brokenness in the world, through the darkness, God still works good. In the no matter what, God still works good. This is the second time Joseph will tell his brothers this. The first time is is when they first reconcile back to one another in chapter 45. He says, now don't be distressed, don't be angry with yourselves. For selling me here. Listen to, he did time in jail. He did time as a slave. He was wrongly accused for honoring God. And this is what he's telling his brothers. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph sees that his brothers, though they sold him into slavery, it was God who sent him on this journey into Egypt. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. 
But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of this entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. Even though the brothers made the decision to hate Joseph, they wanted to kill him. I believe it was Reuben that talked him out of it. They threw him in the well. They sold him into slavery. Joseph says, God's in control. It was God that sent me ahead of you. It was God that caused you to do what you've done. And he tells his brothers, don't be afraid. Yeah, your plans were intentional and they were pretty rotten. You hated me. You were sinful. But God used it for good. God used it to save lives. He made good come from everything that was evil in your heart to keep you alive, to preserve a remnant. We know that what Joseph did in Egypt was to keep the Davidic line alive. The Davidic line would give us Jesus, the Messiah. God sent him to do good out of what looked like pure evil. Genesis chapter 1, God creates and he speaks words over his creation that it's good and it's good and it's good. In chapter 3, sin comes into the picture, destroys everything. And now we live in this world that we live in with brokenness and darkness and hatred and violence and terror. But God's plan is a plan of good and reconciliation and redemption. And his plan will come to fruition in the no matter what. The prophet Jeremiah he spoke this, the same sentiment of the people as they were being taken into captivity. Now, you have to understand captivity. When you were a nation and another nation beat you, then you were taken into what they call either exile or captivity. That means you became their prisoners. It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't an easy thing. This wasn't just a change of address. You now became slaves. You now had to engage and live under their culture, their rule. You became second, third, even fourth class citizens. You could be enslaved, yeah, hopefully, or you could be just killed at the whim of the rulers of the people. This is captivity. The people are headed there. They've been beaten. And the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and tells him this. Tell the people, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future. Just as life seemed out of control, when darkness seemed to be winning, when uncertainty and fear were running rampant, when, when ungodly people were beating down God's people, taking them into captivity, when it seemed that it couldn't get any worse, God gives them this message. I know the plans I have for you. I haven't left you. You're not just hanging there. I know it looks bad, but I know what I'm doing. You know, when you take this verse in the context of where it was written, it changes the whole coffee cup feel that we've given it. 
this is one of, for me anyway, it's just like my pet peeve verse where people just throw it out and have no real context. Like if you were to speak this verse into somebody's life in the context of what it was written in, you would be standing with them as they watched their entire house burn to the ground, lost everything, all of their possessions, and you would say, hey, I know the plans God has for you. It's the plan for you to prosper, not to harm you. And then you would be punched in the face. In the worst possible scenario that was overtaking God's people, he says, I got a plan. And I know it's really bad, but I have a plan. And no one else really knows it, but I know it. And it's a good plan, a plan of of shalom, wholeness, prosperity, and life. And so we enter into 2018. And no matter what takes place around the world, no matter what takes place in our own lives, God's thoughts can never be tainted with anything evil towards his children. There are no evil thoughts in his heart toward you. No thoughts of harm or destruction or revenge or darkness. That is not God's plan. That's not God's heart for his people. He has never had an evil thought against a child of his, and he never will. His plans toward his people are always a plan of good and wholeness. Even in discipline and correction, it's for our good. And, and I really believe that in the church, we... We call too many things God's discipline and correction. But he does discipline, he does correct, but he does it as a loving father because he desires good for us. There is not a single plan of evil in his heart for any of his children, ever, never. But see, here's the tension that we live in. We live in the already and not yet. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it's not fully at hand yet. And so we, the church, Christian, we're not exempt from hardship. We're not exempt from brokenness and struggle and sadness and despair and tragedy and depression, anxiety. We're we're not immune to those things. Hurtful, bad things happen to us. And at the time, they they happened at the hands of other people. We had no part in it. We didn't deserve it to happen to us. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it happened. Bad things happen to his children. And see, and, and this is where it gets really hard. This is where it just doesn't become Cracker Jack Christianity, you know, just all covered with sugar and sweet, and you get a little prize inside. You know, this, this is where the rubber meets the road because this is about faith, that in the brokenness, in the hardship, in the despair, in the anxiousness, what happens to us, even the evil that we suffer, God can use for good. God will use for good. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that as a cliche. I hate that I have to preach that. 
I really do, because I know the stories of people in this church. We're a small community, and I know that people in our community have suffered deep brokenness and hurt and loss. And I don't say that very I don't say this whole God works for good easily. But that's what the scripture teaches us. We don't have to fear even in the most fearful of situations because God is in control. What we think is going to kill us, God wants to use it to strengthen us and to build us up. No matter what, we have a future and we have a hope. In our darkest hour, we have a future and we have a hope. Paul echoes Jeremiah's words in Romans. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then later in third, verse 31, 32, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? About 12 and a half hours, we'll say goodbye to 2017. We'll enter into 2018. Not a lot's going to change in the world. I'm sure the headlines are going to read the same. Bomb here, death here, accident there. I don't know what the year holds in store for, for any of us. None of us do. But here's the promise. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the no matter what, when the world is against us, God is for us. When the darkness tries to prevail, God is for us. When brokenness sucker punches you, God is for us. Last night, as I was going through my notes, I, I was reminded of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians He writes this. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's our story. We're not immune to what the world throws at us. But even in the darkness, God desires good for his people. And so as we enter into a new year, let's remember that in the no matter what, God is for our good. He is for our good. God, I want to thank you for that promise. I pray that it resonates into our very soul and becomes, becomes our future and our hope. Pray a blessing upon this community. 
may we continue to grow in the assurance that you are for us and not against us. And for those that have suffered loss, I pray healing. And think of Margaret this morning. Father, will you begin to heal her heart by allowing her to grieve well. And for her son Robert and her daughter Debbie, may grace be with them. For all those who... For all those who feel abandoned, even by you, may you be their sure foundation and may healing come by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we say goodbye to 2017. We welcome in a new year. We look forward. We look forward to what you're going to do And we are going to rest in those words. If you are for us, who could be against us? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you're traveling tonight, be careful. If you're going to be outside, you're stupid. Um, (laughs) I love you guys. Happy New Year. We'll see you next week.